As we step into our passage this morning in John, I want us to put ourselves into the shoes of the disciples and call on times when we've had loved ones who've left. And it is always difficult when a loved one leaves, even when you expect it. And this is a transitional passage and idea. There's, there's movement here. The Father sends the Son. The Son accomplishes His work on earth. And then the Father and the Son send the Spirit. And our triune God's work increases on earth. Yet, for the disciples, everything is about to change. Everything that they have known up to this point, their three years of walking with Jesus, of hearing Him teach, of hearing Him pray, of watching him perform miracles, of him ministering directly to them in their lives is about to change. And the entire world is about to change with it. Nothing will ever be the same. And so these 11 young men are hearing these words and there's a moment of shock and Jesus is going to address that. But it's a good thing. It is to their advantage that this happens. And it cannot happen, all the things that Jesus promises cannot happen without the cross. That's the other theme you're going to see run through this entire passage, that this all looks toward and comes out of the cross. And in our culture, people like to avoid things that are uncomfortable. And people, many Christians will avoid, or people who call themselves Christians will avoid the cross. As a Christian, you cannot avoid the cross. It's too bloody. It's too uncomfortable. I don't like thinking about that. It makes me uncomfortable. You have to think about that. If you don't understand the cross, you don't understand Christ, and you don't understand this conversation on the Holy Spirit. If you don't understand the cross, you don't understand your own sin. And the good news is not really good news. People will often say, well, can't we just talk about love? You can't know God's love without the cross. You cannot know God without the Spirit. And the Spirit could not have been sent unless Jesus went home to be with the Father. These things are dependent on one another. We're going to flesh this out more as we go. But if Jesus takes the time to talk to his disciples and unpack the divine economy and the divine plan, then maybe we should take some time to consider it. So I want to jump right in our text And I want us to lean in here this morning. And so I'll give you a little rundown of what we're going to do. We're going to walk through this passage, but we're also going to be drawing on a lot in John because Jesus is tying together many themes that have already been addressed in John. And there's going to be a lot of theological things that need to be clarified. So we're going to spend a lot of time in John and uh, we're going to spend a lot of time in this passage. And hopefully you'll have a better understanding of Jesus' desire for his disciples and for us and the work of the Holy Spirit in Jesus' absence. So if you would, open your Bibles to John chapter 16. I'm going to begin reading in verse 4. I'm going to read through verse 15. John 16, 4. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning, because I was with you. But now I am going to the one who sent me, and none of you asked me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment. 
because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, oh, that we would be people directed by the Spirit so that everything we'll do and say will be to glorify you. I just pray this morning that in this text that Christ is exalted and that we understand the role of the Spirit is to glorify Christ in the world and in our lives. And all those who reject Him will be convicted and condemned. But not for us to focus on our sorrow and our hurt and what we lack, but what we gain through Christ Jesus. Thank you for your word that opens up the divine counsel to us. Let us sit under its authority. Let it correct us. Let it rebuke us. Let it train us in righteousness. I pray for those here this morning who do not know you. Lord, we know that it is only by the work of the Spirit that someone can turn and trust in Jesus Christ. Pray that your Spirit continue to work in your body this morning and continue to draw those to you who do not know you. And I pray that your Word would accomplish its purpose. That it would be living and active. That it would pierce where it needs to pierce and cut where it needs to cut and encourage where it needs to encourage. So that we as a people will be transformed by your spirit from one degree of glory to another into the image of Christ until the day that he returns. And it is in his name we pray. Amen. So as you remember last week, we transitioned from the love of the disciples to the hatred of the world. And we finished off at the beginning of chapter 16 where Jesus is talking to his disciples. Now there are particular things that are going to happen to the disciples. Verse 2 of chapter 16, they will put you out of the synagogue. Now, this is not written to us. We will not be put out of the synagogue. Not that I know of. I don't think any of you are members of a synagogue. But if you understand the purpose of the synagogue in that culture, that it was the, the central, central collaboration of all of life. It was religious. It was political. It was societal. If you were kicked out of the synagogue, you were ostracized from, from your people, from all public life. Don't think that we are going to be above that. If you confess the name of Jesus Christ, do not be surprised when you are ostracized in the public sphere. Don't be surprised when the world puts you out of its clubs and its associations and it doesn't want a part of you because you are a part of Christ. But count yourself blessed. Jesus also says the hour is coming when whoever kills you, again in verse 2, will think that he is offering services to God. All of the disciples except for John would be killed for the name of Jesus Christ. Most of us will not be killed for the name of Jesus Christ. But even the, the Jews that killed the disciples thought they were doing it in honor to God. And there are still brothers and sisters in Christ who are being killed every day by those who think that they're doing the righteous thing to suppress these upstart Christians who would upset the status quo. So even though Jesus is setting the, the tone of all this to the disciples directly, there are implications for us. 
We cannot expect to be loved by the world. We cannot expect for the world to love us and welcome us as its own because we are not its own. Jesus is preparing them for his absence. He says, remember these things because these things will happen. And this is unexpected because while Jesus was with them, all the attention was focused on him. The disciples could fly under the radar. Everyone hated Jesus. They all shouted, crucify him. But now when he's gone, the hatred of the world will be passed from him onto them. And this is what he's preparing them for. But praise be to God that he is faithful and abounding in steadfast love, that when the hatred of the world passes from our Savior to us, so does the Spirit of our Savior pass from him to us. And so when the world hates us and we take on the burden that he takes on, we are told many times to share in the sufferings of Christ. We will, if we proclaim his name, share in the sufferings of Christ. But we will share in his spirit that he has poured out on his flesh. And so this is where we find ourselves. The world will hate you. You are in opposition with it, but there is good news. There is an advantage that I must go. And so he's telling them, listen to these words carefully. And for us, listen to these words carefully. Remember them because these things will happen. And as we turn on the news, these things are happening more and more and more to believers. I didn't say these things from the beginning because I was with you, the second half of verse 4. Jesus knows that there are certain things they could handle while he was with them. There's a safety. There's a protection when your Savior walks right next to you. But there's additional encouragement you need. There's additional strengthening you need. Because he would not be with them in bodily presence, but he would give them something better, a spiritual presence. Now in verse 5, he speaks of this change, this transition, the movement that we talked about earlier. But now, that was before, this is now. In only a matter of hours, I am going to him who sent me. This sets up everything else. This is going to happen, whether you like it or not, so pay attention. Hear what I have to say to you. And Jesus, as he always does, and as we can learn from him, he makes sure that people are asking the right questions. Just look at the second half of verse 5. And none of you ask me, where are you going? We've actually covered this twice. If you turn back in John, and you're going to be doing a lot of this, so I want you to have John open and get ready to flip back and forth because we're going to look at a lot of what we've talked about in John already. Look at the end of John chapter 13. So Jesus tells them that he's going to go. Peter says in verse 36, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Peter asked the right question, but he doesn't stay focused long enough. Peter's got ADD or something. Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. Where are you going? Good question. But you can't follow me. Oh, wait a second. Uh, Why can't I go right now? Look at Peter said, Lord, why can I not follow you now? How impatient he is. Jesus answered him, will you lay down your life for me? They never get back to the question of where is Jesus going? More concerned is Peter with that he's leaving. And Jesus' call to him is, will you lay down your life for me? Again, Thomas asks, Chapter 14, just a few verses down, verse 5, actually verse 3. And if I go, so Jesus speaking to the disciples, I prepare a place for you. I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am you may be also. And you will know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to the Lord, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? 
Again, he does not ask, where are you going? Jesus says, this is most important. Because they are focusing on the incarnate Christ. They cannot understand that this man who is standing in front of them in the flesh is fully God. And his rightful place is on the throne of glory. They don't ask, where are you going? But why can't I follow you now? And, and how can we get there? Both good questions, but the real question is, where are you going? Because if they know where he's going, they know who he truly is. And he's trying to get them to understand who he truly is. So he says, none of you ask me, where am I going? Verse 6, but, I, but because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Even after everything he said to them, he's encouraged them, he's promised them the Holy Spirit, they are still heartbroken. And their focus is on themselves. Jesus says, I'm going to a better place. I'm preparing a place for you. I'm sending my Holy Spirit. And they say, what about us? He knows the brokenness that they feel. They are filled with fear about a life without Jesus. And yet he said all these things to teach and to encourage him. What a human response, right? To be focused on what you will lose rather than what you gain. How often do we do that? I'm going to lose this. Don't take away from me what I have here without laying into what I will gain in Christ. And we know how this feels. Every one of us in here who is a follower of Christ, we have the scriptures. We have all the promises of Christ. But how often do we lose heart? How often are we sorrowful in our own circumstances? How often are we so overcome by what we have lost or what we might lose? versus how much we've gained in Christ. And it's just an important thing to ask yourself, because do we just look at the Scriptures, or do we believe them and we apply them and take comfort in them? And this is a question we all have to ask ourselves. Are you filled with sorrow because of everything that you've lost or everything that you don't have, or are you filled with joy because of everything you have gained in Christ? We are to be people who are marked by joy, not sorrow. We have nothing to be sorrowful about. We sing all these songs about how our sin has sent Jesus to the cross. We should be rejoicing because we have been redeemed because we do not deserve it. Nevertheless, Jesus says, I know how weak you are. I know how sorrow-filled you are, but I bring good news. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. This is not just a matter of a figure of speech. Jesus is emphasizing here because he knows this is a hard pill to swallow. Nevertheless, I know how sorrowful you are, but I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. So, I mean, put yourselves in the shoes of the disciples here. It's easy for us to have foresight and judge them, but think about it. You're walking day after day with Jesus. He just tells them at the beginning of chapter 15 to abide with me. We are abiding with you. You're right here. Now you have to go? How is this to our advantage? And I'm just going to scratch the surface here. If you want more, you can walk back through John. But I just want to give you a few. Just from chapter 14, how is it to the advantage of the disciples that Jesus goes? Look at chapter 14, verse 2. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Advantage. He's going to prepare a place for you. You disciples, you don't have a home now. You've got an eternal one that I'm preparing for you. Verse 3, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. How is it to their advantage? I'm preparing a place. I'm coming back and I'm bringing you to myself. 
It's a lot better than walking here on earth, but it's hard for us to grasp that. Verse 12, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these he will do, because I am going to the Father. Jesus goes back to the Father and sends the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit is going to work a quantity of, of works that is greater than what Jesus ever did. Now, don't hear me minimize the work of Jesus, but Jesus, on purpose, did not leave the Judean area. Because of the Holy Spirit, we will do greater works. The gospel will go to the nations, because my spirit is in all places and can be everywhere within each one of my disciples, where I am limited to this physical space. It is to your advantage. And he goes on to say, verse 16, And if I ask the Father, he will give you another helper helper to be with you forever. I will leave you in my body, but it is to your advantage because the helper, the Holy Spirit, will be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. What is the advantage of the believer? They have the Holy Spirit forever dwelling within them. They did not have that with Jesus in the flesh. It is to your advantage Verse 20, in that day, you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. There is a knowledge that will increase with the Holy Spirit. They still did not understand who Jesus was in this very moment. But with the Holy Spirit, they would understand that he is one with the Father and one with the Spirit. Our God is triune and has revealed himself to us in Father, Son, and Spirit. That is to your advantage. In addition, verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Our God dwells with us all throughout scripture. The design is that he will be our God and we will be his people. It is to your advantage that I go. I can't dwell with each one of you in my body, but I will send my spirit and we will make our home with you. Even the wicked Caiaphas prophesies this correctly. Look at chapter 11. Caiaphas is this snarky high priest who just derides everyone who doesn't understand him. Uh, and he speaks some words he doesn't even understand. Look at John chapter 11, verse 49. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. That's a great way to start a conversation. You know nothing. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. That is prophetic. It is better for you that one man should die, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not know what he was saying. Verse 51, he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. It is to your advantage that Jesus go, go to the cross and die, so that you don't all perish in your sins. And not just you, but if he goes to the cross, he will gather in all of the elect from all of the nations. He will bring all of his sheep back to the fold. It is to your advantage that he goes. Jesus is telling them, you think it's, that it's good to be with me? It is, but it is better when I go. I myself say, and I assure you of it, I must go. I must go to the cross. I must die for your sins. I must die for the nations, but my helper will come. And we've got to be honest here. Admittedly, this is tough to understand, and this is tough to explain. 
And I realize my inadequacy this week as I'm trying to figure out how to put this into words. How do I explain the Holy Spirit? How do I explain how the Spirit of God is eternal and transcendent and works within each one of us? And yet works within the world the convicted of sin and righteousness and judgment. We are just going to scratch the surface this morning. And I pray that as you can bear it, the Spirit reveals to you in His Word who He is and what He has come to do. Because in our humanity, we are so limited. I mean, these are things way beyond what can fit into our little brains. And even the disciples with Jesus standing right in front of them, they did not understand this. They lacked understanding and they lacked faith. They also lacked redemption and regeneration. They had not been redeemed yet. They, they had not been regenerated. The Spirit had not been sent to them yet. So they're standing in their ignorance because their friend is about to leave and they're feeling sorrowful. Jesus is trying to prepare them for what is better. The cross is better. How can this bloody torture, the worst the world has ever known, be better? Because it is on the cross where we see the final sacrifice for sin. It is on the cross when atonement, our sins have been covered by the blood of Christ. It is on the cross where we see reconciliation, where God can now be reconciled to man. It is on the cross which a new covenant is instituted and the indwelling Holy Spirit will dwell with God's people forever. That is to our advantage. And it can only happen through the cross. As we see throughout the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was active, but he would come and he would go and he would come on the workers of the temple. He'd come on Saul for a moment and then he would leave. But in the new covenant, the Holy Spirit will dwell forever. This new covenant language is opened in Jeremiah 31. So if you turn to Jeremiah 31, and I'm going to help you in your Bibles. If you have a Bible and you do not know where Jeremiah is, open it up. Open right to the middle of your Bible. You'll find Psalms. Go past a couple small wisdom books. You'll get into the major prophets. After Isaiah, you will find Jeremiah. Jeremiah 31, starting in verse 31. Easy enough to remember. I love to hear Bible pages turning. You guys, you guys are on phones. You're missing out, I'm telling you. Jeremiah 31, 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them uh, by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they will be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. It is on the cross where iniquity is forgiven, and sin will never, ever be remembered. And he will write the law on our hearts. How does he write the law on our hearts? Go to the next major prophet, Ezekiel, one book to the right, chapter 36. This is also new covenant language. How is it that this new covenant is written on our hearts? How will each one of us know the Lord? Starting in verse 24. I will take you from the nations and gather you from among the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness and from your idols I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. How is it that our sins can be forgiven? How is it 
that the law will be in our hearts because he sends his spirit, puts a new spirit within us, breathes life into our dead hearts. That is to our advantage, and that cannot happen without the cross. The Holy Spirit gives new life and understanding and faith. And this, we cannot apply the benefits of this covenant until it has been inaugurated. Back in John, look at chapter 7. John gives us one of these little foreshadowing notes. It's really helpful. Jesus is standing in the midst of the temple, and we covered this six months ago or whenever we were in chapter 7. Chapter 7, starting in verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believe in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. The advantage to us is our hearts will become streams of living water, rocks. There is no life in a rock. But rocks will turn into flesh and become fountains of living water because of the Holy Spirit. Yet, the Holy Spirit had not been given at this moment because Jesus had not been glorified. He could not be glorified until his work had been finished. He must go to the cross first. He must die to sin, to reconcile man to God, and then he must be resurrected, and then he must be glorified in his eternal state and sitting on the right hand of the Father. At that point, the Holy Spirit would be sent out at Pentecost, and we'll get there in just a moment in Acts 2. But that is to their advantage, that the Spirit might come, and all these things must happen first. Living water. The Holy Spirit changes everything from dead people who now become alive in Christ. No longer carnal people walking according to fleshly desires, but spiritual people given the capacity by the Holy Spirit to know Christ intimately and to walk with him and to be obedient to him because his law has been written on our hearts. That is to our advantage. We need to get this. You cannot gloss over the cross and you you cannot misunderstand the work of the Spirit within the believer, because we're going to get to some of these errors and distortions that appear in our day. So, Jesus goes on in verse 8, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And when he comes, it is a certainty he will come, and it's going to be very soon. There is something true that will happen when he comes that is not true right now. The Holy Spirit is a helper, but he is also a convictor and a prosecutor. And there is no knowledge of these things without the Spirit of truth. We must understand that all the works of the Spirit are poured out of the finished work of Christ. There is no work of the Spirit if Christ does not go to the cross. Everything is out of Christ and points to Christ. To Him are all things and for all things and through all things, so that He would receive all the glory. And now, this is one of the harder verses or concepts to explain that we've had to deal with in John. Because this word convict, if we read it with a 21st century understanding, convict means a lot of different things, and this word is used in a lot of different ways. But I want to help us out here, because I needed help here. This word convict is is translated in, in many different forms. It's translated as rebuke. It's translated as charge. It's also translated as expose. 
So this is not conviction in the sense that, all, that it always leads to repentance. It often does, but it just brings it to light. One of those verses, John chapter 3, verse 20. I won't look at all of the uses of this word, only those in John. John 3, 20. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. Same word. What is this conviction of the, of the Spirit? Casting light on darkness, that his work should be exposed. Also, look at chapter 8, verse 46. This is a very different context, but it helps you understand the meaning of the word. John 8, 46. Jesus, now speaking to the Pharisees, he just told them that you were sons of the devil because they're putting charges against him, telling him that he was, he was born of sexual immorality. Jesus says in verse 46, Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? Now certainly, they do not have the power to convict him of sin because there is no sin. Which one of you can rebuke me? Which one of you can expose my sin? Which one of you can bring a charge against me? But the Holy Spirit can rightly bring charges. The Holy Spirit brings awareness to these things. Just like you can be convicted of a crime, yet never show guilt and never repent. The, the, the same kind of, kind of sense. The Holy Spirit brings awareness and reveals the world its nature. And if there is a repentance, it only comes out of a new nature that is given by the Spirit. Because remember, Jesus said back in fourteen seventeen, the world cannot receive the Spirit. So not every conviction turns to repentance. And your will, your nature must be changed by the Holy Spirit or they can't be receptive. Heart of stone only wants fleshly things. It only wants things that, that feed it, dead things. A heart of stone cannot want things that lead to life. It must be born again. It must be born of the Spirit. That famous passage in John 3, I want to turn there because this is another helpful analogy Jesus uses and another divine truth that he opens up for us. In John chapter 3, and if you're getting tired of flipping back and forth, Pace yourself, because we got a few more to do. Um, John chapter 3, verse 3. Jesus, talking to Nicodemus now, this brave Sadducee who, who risks being exposed in the dead of night by running to Jesus, says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born again when he is old? Can he enter into a second time into the mother's womb and be born? Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water and the Spirit, he cannot enter, enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. In order for this conviction to take hold, you must be born of the Spirit. And the Spirit works in a way that we can't understand and we can't predict. So for those who, who try to make the Spirit like their own personal genie at, at their beck and call, one of the most ridiculous things I've heard of a very popular teacher uh, who's very influential, she said these words, I like to think of the Holy Spirit as like the genie in Aladdin. This church teaches thousands if not millions of people and puts music out on all of your favorite radio stations, and this is what they believe. The Holy Spirit is like a genie that we can kind of 
call on when we need. Or we're going to welcome the, the Spirit in. The Spirit's going to do whatever we want it to do. Jesus always refers to the Spirit as He, a person, not an it, not a power for you to wield according to your own desires. And you cannot control the work of the Spirit, but you must be controlled by the work of the Spirit. The Spirit must work first before you can do any of these things. So we have to get that. It is the Spirit's work that that convicts and that changes. And this is something else that was really helpful. Deshaun sent me a good article this week. There's a difference between conviction and accusation. The Spirit convicts, but our enemy accuses. When the Spirit convicts of sin, there is a recognition of a particular sin. There is a reminder of Scripture. There is a reminder that this is not honoring to Christ. Repent from this and turn to Him because His grace is sufficient for your sin. That is conviction that leads to repentance. But the accuser says, this sin is unforgivable. You can't be reconciled. You've gone too far. There is no hope from you. I have talked to so many of you who know the voice of accusation. Make sure that you are listening to conviction that points you to Christ, reminds you of his grace, and his mercy is more than all of our sins, rather than an accusation that condemns you and and says that Christ is not enough for your sin. For the believer, that's why conviction is a good thing. But let's walk through each one of these. Verse 9. The Holy Spirit will convict uh, the world according to sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. This is directly primarily at the world. Concerning sin, because they, being the world, do not believe in me. The Holy Spirit is the one who makes people realize that they are sinners. Where does guilt come from and recognition of, of wrongdoing? That is from the Holy Spirit. But that conviction does not always lead to repentance. The conviction of the Spirit will either lead to repentance or suppression. You will either recognize your sin and your heart will be broken over your sin and you will repent or you will suppress it. You will push it so far down that you don't have to deal with it. And that's a question that every one of us must answer this morning. The Holy Spirit will convict you of your sin. Are you repenting or are you suppressing? Are you repenting of your sin? Do you recognize it or are you suppressing it and pushing it so far down? He says, convicts the world of sin because they do not believe in me. Underneath every sin is the sin of unbelief. God is not good enough. God is not powerful enough. His grace will not extend to me. It cannot be this good. I would rather hold on to what I have as puny and and pathetic as it is than to trust in a God who can redeem me from myself. Christ is the only remedy to this, but in its arrogance, the world thinks that it does not need him. The world thinks it is righteous in in, and of itself. And our culture wants to explain away and excuse away all notions of sin. That's why the Holy Spirit is necessary. You have no excuse. You know that you are guilty. If you have broken one commandment, you have broken them all. The world does not want to be exposed for what it is. Its darkness does not want to see the light. That's what the Spirit does in the world. Also, verse 10, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father, and you will see me no more. Jesus' example here of of righteousness is directed toward the believers, because you will see me no more. Because he goes to the Father, his work is finished, and you are convicted of righteousness. You are convicted that you cannot stand before God in your righteousness alone. There's something we call the great exchange. We're on the cross. 
Jesus takes on our sin. It's the worst deal in history. Jesus takes on our sin and gives us his righteousness. The world convicts the righteous one, yet he gives his righteousness to us. He exchanges our sin for his righteousness so that we might become the righteousness of God. This is the gospel. This can only happen in the cross. This is why we must understand this to go forward. And when we understand the gospel, we understand what was transferred on the cross. Then we can be convicted to righteousness. We, the Spirit reminds us what honors Christ. We must have the Spirit with us to convict us of righteousness because we no longer have our faith based on sights and signs. Jesus does not walk with us in bodily form, but he sends his Spirit within us so that we may walk with him forever. You may not see me. You're going to miss seeing my face, but you will have my Spirit who will convict you of righteousness. Jesus is not walking with us in bodily form, but he lives in us so that we might walk with him. But there's also a conviction of righteousness for the world because they crucified the righteous one. And the world on its own thinks that it is righteous. When the Jews put him up on the cross, they thought that they were doing what was pleasing to God. How foolish was their own righteousness. The world does what is righteous in its own eyes. But Jesus is the standard for righteousness. If you think you are righteous in and of yourself, look to Christ. He is the standard. Spoiler alert, you are not righteous on your own. If you have any righteousness at all, it comes from Christ. He is the righteous one. We must be clear on this. We must know this as believers, and we must teach this to those who are standing in their own righteousness. Verse 11, concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. He has been judged already. His end is sure. The sentence has already been ushered, even if it has not been brought into reality yet. The ruler of this world, the enemy of Christ, the one we spent so much time last week talking about, and anyone who rejects Christ, the judgment is sure. The Holy Spirit comes to convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and judgment, because the leader of the world is judged already. We actually see all three of these in Acts 2. So if you would, turn to Acts 2 with me. I want to walk through this quickly and I encourage you to spend some time in this this week. How do we understand the role of the Holy Spirit and what the Holy Spirit is doing so we see the immediate effects of this? Within 40 days after Jesus' resurrection, we, we see this. So we see the passage in Joel being fulfilled, which we read earlier. We're going to see all of these elements, and I want to walk you through it quickly. But there's also an, an ultimate sense here as well, that this process continues of the Holy Spirit's work within the world. So Acts chapter 2, we know in, in verse 17, we read this earlier, and in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour my spirit out on all flesh. Skip down to verse 21, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. The Holy Spirit is poured out for salvation. This is why the Holy Spirit must come. That the Holy Spirit will make people cry out to the Lord and be saved. The Holy Spirit comes for salvation. But the righteous one must be crucified first. Verse 23, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God, a man right before God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up 
according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. The righteous one had to be crucified. The righteous one had to be cut down by the hands of sin. So that, verse 24, God raised him up, loosening the pains of death, because it is not possible for him to be held by it. So he was crucified, he was exalted, and he's raised in victory. But skip down to verse 32. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He poured out this, the Holy Spirit, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Everything that's going on right now, this message that is coming out of our mouths is from the Holy Spirit. And this judgment that would happen to the enemies of the Lord, verse 34, for David did not ascend into heaven, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your, your footstool. The ruler of this world has already been judged. And now the gospel proclamation goes out, and here's what repentance looks like. Conviction should turn to repentance. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, who you crucified. You are guilty. The Holy Spirit is convicting the world of their own guilt in the crucifixion of Christ. Now when they heard this, they were cut to their heart. That is conviction that leads to repentance. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Jesus went to the cross, and it is a gift when we repent and turn to him. For the promise is for you and for your children and, for, and who all are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. And they were also added that day about 3,000 souls. So we see this conviction of the world, the conviction of righteousness, and the conviction of judgment. Many received it. Many rejected it. Jesus talks about the Spirit working in the world. This is missions. It goes out to the nations. It convicts the world of sin, but it also works within the church, within the believers. Verse 12. I'm going to try to get through these last few verses quick. Back in John, verse 12, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. So the revelation of God was revealed to God's people as they could receive it. Jesus didn't tell them everything up front. He led them with breadcrumbs and walked them along because they could not receive it. And they still could not yet receive the whole counsel of God because they had not received the Holy Spirit. They couldn't handle it or even comprehend it. I know you can't bear it now, but the Spirit is coming. He's going to lead you to all truth. And I just want to encourage us, because the Lord does the same thing with us. I've talked to so many of you who read your Bible and you get frustrated. Why can't I understand this? Why is the seam over my head? The Lord will reveal to you what you can bear now. And he teaches us over time. And continue to go back to his word. And if you seek him with all your heart, your soul, mind, and strength. The Holy Spirit will continue to teach and to guide you through his word. And the Spirit keeps teaching us. We keep learning. That's what it means to be a disciple, a learner. You never stop learning. You never stop growing. But he gives you what you can bear in the season the same way he did to his disciples. And when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will speak not in his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak 
and he will declare to you. The Spirit is our guide. He is our leader. The Spirit will guide us in all truth. Jesus is the only truth. Jesus is the only way, and it is the Spirit who points us to him. Not in his own authority. The Spirit has not come to suppress Christ. And again, in our culture, we have many who are exalting the Holy Spirit as being greater than Christ. Exalting the Holy Spirit and minimizing Christ because the Holy Spirit does signs and wonders and cool things and he sells tickets. But that is a distortion. Never does the Spirit do anything on his own authority. It's always to exalt Christ and to glorify him and reveal the divine counsel of God so that Christ may be exalted. And not just some truth. The Holy Spirit comes, he will guide you into all truth. Everything we need to know from the Father to the Son through the Spirit, the whole counsel of God. And it is sad when people try to use the Holy Spirit to manipulate and, and to co-sign their own agenda. Not for the glory of Christ, but for the glory of man, the glory of a book. This is so dangerous. The Holy Spirit is not some rogue entity that is operating without the Son and the Father. The Holy Spirit is operating within perfect communion with the Son and the Father to glorify the Son according to the will of the Father, and he will declare to you what is to come. Both John and Peter prophesied about things that were to come, but all of the writers of Scripture wrote Scripture with the Holy Spirit for the benefit of what was to come for us, to reveal what it looks like to walk in this world, to walk according to faith, to know how to be people of the Spirit. That is the role of the Spirit, to reveal to God's people what is to come so that they will be comforted when trials arise. They will be rooted in Him. They will not fall away. They will abide in Christ in times of difficulty. He, verse 14, the Holy Spirit will glorify me, for He will take what is mine and declare it to you. The purpose of the Holy Spirit in this world is to exalt Christ. If you hear people in popular Christian songs, which drive me nuts, talking about the Holy Spirit being the end in and of himself, the Holy Spirit is always the point is to Christ, always to exalt Christ, for him to be lifted up. That's why we're in the Gospel of John. It is so you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and in him you will have life everlasting. That is the role of the Holy Spirit in the world. That is the role of the Holy Spirit in us. Because when the Spirit comes and dwells in us, it is Him who convicts. It is Him who transforms. So the weight doesn't have to be on us. I cannot stand up here and preach without the Holy Spirit. You cannot listen or learn without the Holy Spirit. We cannot witness without the Holy Spirit. We can't evangelize without the Holy Spirit. We can't teach or disciple or do anything without Him. It is Him who convicts according to sin and according to righteousness. And if you reject Christ, it is Him according to judgment, who will remind you of where your destiny is. We're going to end here in verse 15. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he, the Holy Spirit, will take what is mine and declare to you. Again and again and again, Jesus reveals Father, Son, and Spirit working in perfect accord. And he declares it to us. All of the Father's is the Son's declared by the Spirit. I'm going to close with this last passage from Matthew chapter 11. These words of Jesus. Matthew 11, starting in verse 25. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. 
Amen. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. This is the call here. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lonely of heart, and I will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I just want to leave you with this. All things were given to the Son by the Father, revealed through the Holy Spirit. And Jesus calls If you are heavy laden and the Spirit is drawing you, do not delay. Come to Him. And if you know Him and you are His, take courage in this because you know that that burden is light. Do not be filled with sorrow. Know that He has sent the Spirit to teach and guide and encourage you. Let's pray. God, you are gracious and awesome, wonderful, powerful beyond measure. How can we ever even put into words divine foreknowledge and plan of the Father, the perfect work of the Son, and the continued ministry of the Holy Spirit? How do we begin to understand this? Why would you even reveal this to us? But you have, because of your love and mercy for us. Lord, convict us of our sin everywhere where we fall short of the glory of God. Bring us to our knees in repentance that we may be reconciled to you. Convict us of righteousness that it only comes from Christ and that it is only by his death for our sins that we can have any hope of righteousness. Convict us according to judgment that we either put our faith in you or we are condemned already with the ruler of this world. Lord, I pray that your spirit continues his work in this body and in this city and all who are laboring, heavy laden, would come to you and find rest. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.